Shema Yisrael. Welcome to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries with Aaron Budgen. Aaron discovered Jesus is his Messiah while preparing to be a rabbi. He now teaches for several organizations and is the teaching pastor for Living God Ministries. Strongly distinguishing between the Old and New Covenants, Aaron presents the scriptures from a Judaic and historical frame of reference. Join Aaron now as he reveals the reality foreshadowed and the new life we can now experience because of what the Lord Jesus accomplished for us. I'm presenting a series of programs on the subject of spiritual warfare, and today's program is a continuation of the previous broadcast. Now, in the previous broadcast, what I was talking about was the gospel. Take some time to seriously think about the way that I describe the gospel, not just the forgiveness of sins, but also the restoration of life, the restoration of the Holy Spirit that had been lost in Adam. If you will consider that, then I believe that you will understand what I say when I say that we have to be in some kind of major spiritual war when you recognize that very few people understand that that is a complete description of the gospel. In order for there to be so much uncertainty when it comes to the subject of the gospel, we have to have a significant amount of opposition that we are dealing with in order to show that that has certainly been hidden from generations, the idea of Christ in you, especially when it comes to the subject of forgiveness, to understand the place of forgiveness, the purpose of forgiveness, which was to ensure that the Holy Spirit would never depart from within us, because the wages of sin is death, but because there is no sin that will be held against us anymore, because of the forgiveness that was provided through the Messiah, one time on the cross, all sins, past, present, and future. Because of that, there is no sin that will cause the Holy Spirit to depart from within an individual ever again. So the life that we now have is, by definition, an eternal life, an everlasting life, a life that you can enjoy and experience right now and will carry you on into eternity after you physically die. Now, as I mentioned at the end of the previous program, I want to go back to a verse that I mentioned previously, and that is Matthew chapter 7, verses 22 and 23. I want you to think about this from the point of view of the gospel that I just explained, and I will make the assumption that that is certain, that we know that the gospel is about sin, death, forgiveness, and the restoration of life. If that is what we can be certain of, then let's take a look at these two verses and identify some things that could probably be uncertain or could create some uncertainties. And I will examine these two verses from the point of view of those things that I know are certain in order to show you that there are some uncertainties that could be defined as being more certain. And so let me start with Matthew chapter 7, verse 22, where it says, Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Now, the first thing that I would like you to focus on is the fact that he says, depart from me, that you do not have a place with me. I believe that we can look at this and we can say that this is a person who is not saved that they have not been 
resurrected from the dead through the indwelling presence of the life of God. They are not alive, they are dead, they are lost, they are not saved. And the Lord speaks to this person directly, and he says, Go away. I don't know who you are. You don't have a place here. Depart from me. And then he follows up and says, You who practice lawlessness. Now let's start with this lawlessness for a moment. Does this mean that the criteria for salvation is whether or not you practice lawlessness? What is the criteria to ensure that when you stand before the Lord Jesus, he doesn't say, go away, I don't know who you are. Do you want to be faced with that when you go and stand before the Lord Jesus? I believe he's telling the truth. I believe that we will go before him, and when we do, that this is a possibility. And so what is the criteria? Well, you can look at this and you can make the assumption that the criteria would be Make sure that you never practice lawlessness. Maybe that's the criteria. Or maybe we should be sure that we don't do enough lawlessness. Well, what would that mean? Do you understand where I'm going with this? Think about this for a moment. If lawlessness is the criteria, then when will you know, when will you be certain that you have violated the Lord Jesus to the extent where he would say this to you? How much lawlessness do you need in your life in order for this to be real? Now, what some people have done, who I have spoken with about this, what they have done is they have looked at this and they have said things like, well, as long as we don't practice lawlessness, you know, we might have a little bit of lawlessness in our life, but as long as we don't really practice it, well, what does that mean? I mean, what does that really mean? What are you really saying? Do you really think that there is going to be some well-defined criteria that says whether or not you are practicing lawlessness? I mean, let's consider something a little simpler. How about something like a football game, where you would be perhaps part of a football team? Would you say something like, well, as long as I don't practice football before I go and play football, then I'm not really practicing football. But the point is, is that you went and you played. You played the game. Whether you practiced or not, you still played the game. So it is with sin. Whether you practice sinning or don't practice sinning, when you sin, you sinned, regardless of how well practiced you were at doing it before you did it. It's the fact that you did it. But this is the kind of thing that people try to do in order to justify themselves or in order to try to navigate their way through something like this that they just simply have no idea about what it means and that's why they come up with weird things like this. But can you understand that? I mean, think about that. That really is what people believe. That is what people teach. As long as you don't really practice it, You may do it every once in a while, but as long as you're not good at it, is is that what they're saying? As long as you're not well-practiced at it? No, that's not the requirement of the law. The requirement of the law is simple. If you sin, you die, regardless of how well-practiced you are when you actually engage in or commit the sin. Do you understand this? The criteria really isn't a matter of lawlessness, because if this was the criteria then no one would ever enter in to the kingdom of heaven. 
What is the criteria? Now, just give me a minute. I will come back to this. I know some of you are getting really nervous about this. I'll come back to this in just a second. I'm not going off on a rabbit trail when I say this. The criteria for entrance into the kingdom of heaven has to be something besides sin or obedience or repentance or whether you practice sin or you're not very well practiced at it, but you do it anyway. It has to be something else. In the previous program... I read Colossians chapter 1, verse 26, where it says, The mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints, to them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you is the hope of glory. Whether he dwells within you or not is your hope of glory. Not whether or not you are lawless, or whether you obey the law some of the time, or most of the time, or whether you engage in sin some of the time, but you don't do it all the time, or whether you practice it before you do it. That has nothing to do with it. Either you are alive or you are dead. And I believe that God really wants you to know this that he does not want this to be some mystery to you, but he really wants you to know that this is the criteria by which you are saved. It is criteria that has been defined by the gospel. That is the criteria. The criteria has to do with sin, death, forgiveness, and the restoration of life. And it is his will in the sense that it is his desire that you might also know his will that has to do with the inheritance The will is a description of the inheritance that you have received in Christ Jesus, which defines the riches of the glory of this mystery. And so I know in the previous program I mentioned the will in the context of the inheritance. But yes, I do believe that he was probably intending to say that this has to do with his desire more than the inheritance. But sometimes I just simply get reminded of the inheritance just because it is so important to me. But listen. What I want you to really consider is you have to define the criteria. Now, for those who do not believe in the gospel as I described it, they believe in a different gospel. And in general, the gospel that people believe in is a gospel that has to do with sin and forgiveness. And so where will this lead? Well, this can lead to other distortions. I believe that that is a partial answer, which can be a distortion that leads to other distortions. And one of the distortions that exists, one of the distortions that people end up in, is to say things like, well, you know, he does forgive all of the sins that we have already committed. But, you know, those sins that you commit after you're a Christian... Well, those could be handled a little differently. I mean, you already accepted the forgiveness that he provided through the cross for all those past sins. But the future sins, you might have to do a little bit more. You might have to find an additional way to cope with, to respond to the situation of sin, you know, to make things right between you and God. You know, you may not be separated, perhaps, from the point of view of salvation, but maybe there might be a relational, there might be a relational separation that occurs, and so we got to make you right with God. So how do we do that? We tell you that you can maybe ask for forgiveness. You know, we don't want to set our pets on fire. We don't want to ask the Lord to come and die again, you know, things like that. And so let's just apologize. We'll just say we're sorry. 
and then commit yourself to never engage in that sin again. And what does that mean? That means that we have a law, and if you violate that law, you are going to be lawless. You're going to be lawless in the sense that you broke the law. You violated it. You sinned. And so at that point, you should start getting a little nervous. When will it be that you will be so lawless that you will have sinned so much that you might fit into this category? Do you see where these uncertainties start to evolve from? Now, what am I describing? I'm describing a person who is not resting in the complete forgiveness of sins. The indication that we can refer to to say that a person is not resting in the complete forgiveness of sins is because they pursue a life of trying to repent and obey according to the law, but because they fail, they are considered to be lawless or they are practicing lawlessness. So that's how this happens. And then they have uncertainty as to whether they're going to be saved or not. Now listen, if you're not going to rest in the complete forgiveness of sins... The only alternative you have is to go before the Lord and say that you're a pretty good person because of your repentance and obedience. That's all you've got left. The only thing you have left, if you're not going to trust in the forgiveness of sins, then you're going to have to trust in your behavior. You're going to have to trust in the behavior of your flesh, in what happens in your flesh, even in what happens in your heart. So that when you go before the Lord, you can say that you got over your sins or you overcame your sins or something to that effect. If you're not going to trust in the gospel, if you're not going to trust in forgiveness, then the Lord cannot evaluate you on the basis of that criteria. Outside of saying that you're dead and you have no place in the kingdom of heaven. And so the only criteria that he can use in order to judge the present circumstance is whether you are lawless or not, whether you are sinning or not, whether you did commit sin or not, because at this point it would be over, the only criteria that he can use in order to judge you is with the law. So do you understand this? Either you are going to be judged according to the gospel and the grace of God, or you're going to be judged according to the law. That's it. You're either going to enter into the kingdom of heaven on the basis of his grace and mercy, on the basis that your hope of glory is based on what Jesus has done for you so that he can dwell within you. Either it's that or you're going to have to be evaluated according to the law. And there are many passages in the scriptures, in the New Testament especially, that refer to a final judgment where people are judged according to their works. Because there is no other way to judge them. And so what do you think this is going to look like? If you're going to be judged according to your works, is this going to look good? No, it's not going to look good at all. No one will be permitted entrance into the kingdom of heaven on the basis of their works. So you can either be judged according to Christ in you, or you can be judged according to your works. You get to decide. You get to choose. When it came to this conversation that the Lord Jesus was having with the people, in Matthew chapter 7, he was speaking to a group of people who believed that they would be judged according to their works, They believed that they would be judged according to the law, and they felt quite comfortable with that because they believed that they had found a way to live in obedience to the law. But when they are confronted with this, when the Lord Jesus confronts them personally about this, he's going to say, you practice lawlessness, 
Go away. Depart from me. That's the kind of conversation that is going to occur. Now, think about this for just a moment. When it comes to the subject of deception and spiritual warfare, these are people who cast out demons, but they're not going to make it into the kingdom of heaven. What does this mean? I want you to see the nature of the war and the nature of the battle, that the demons convince these people that these people cast out the demons. The demons gave the appearance that they were hurt. They gave the appearance that they were thrown out of somebody. It was an act. They were pretending. Do you understand this? They gave the illusion that this was occurring in order to make the person think that they were right with God because they were able to throw these demons out, cast them out. But the fact is, is that they were not really right with God because they, of course, do not trust in the grace and mercy of God for their salvation. And so what did the demons accomplish? The demons accomplished keeping these people from not only having a relationship with their God while they were alive here on earth, but also prevented them from having a place in the kingdom of heaven. So who really won? Who really experienced the victory? Was it the person who cast out the demons? No. Now, folks, listen to me very carefully. One of the most important parts of strategic warfare is to make your enemy think that they're winning. Again, one of the most important aspects of strategic spiritual warfare is to make your enemy think that they are winning so that when the time comes when they recognize that they lost or that they're going to lose, it's too late. There won't be anything that they can do about it. It's a very, very important tactic in warfare. It's used all the time. In the world, it has been used all the time throughout history in the world, in warfare. Why do you suppose the demons wouldn't do it? They do do that. This is what, this is what they do. This is an example that I can point to to show you that this was a success on their part by giving the appearance that they were cast out and yet they accomplished something else. What did they accomplish? They accomplished getting this person to believe that their relationship with God was based on their ability to obey the law, their ability to live according to the law. That's who Jesus was speaking to, these people who believed that they had found a way to successfully live according to the law. But eventually, if they're not going to believe it now, they're going to believe it later. When the Lord tells them, you failed, you practiced lawlessness, whether you practiced it or not, you still did it, regardless of how well practiced you were, You broke the law, and if that is the criteria that you want to be evaluated by, then we're going to do it, and we'll do it right now, so go away. That's it. That's the evaluation. Go away. You're done. It's either the grace and mercy of God, or it's the law. You've got to choose, and if you choose the law, you're hopeless. You have no hope. The only hope of glory is Christ in you. There is no other. That is the nature of the war that we are in. And I want you to see the role of the law and how the demons use the law. Now, you might be concerned about some things. Things like, well, then why did God give the law? He gave the law for a number of reasons. But if you think he gave the law so that you might be able to enter into the kingdom of heaven, you're wrong. That's not one of the reasons why he gave the law. He gave the law to lead you to the point where you could enter into the kingdom of heaven if you will recognize the truth that is revealed through the law, 
that is that you are hopeless. That's one example of the law. But folks, this goes way back. It goes way back to the Garden of Eden. Remember the fall in the Garden of Eden. Do not forget this. When God gave the law, he gave the law, said, don't eat from that tree. Don't eat from that tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You were made to live differently. You were not made to live in that tree. You were made to live in the tree of life. In the tree of life, not in the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So stay in the tree of life. Don't get out of that tree. Don't go over to the other tree. But the people who were there, Adam and Eve, they went to the wrong tree. They believed the satanic lie that if they only knew what was good and evil, then they could be like God. They could be good because they would know what to do. And so they could just do it. They would know what not to do, what to avoid. And so they just wouldn't do that. If they were properly informed according to the definitions that we would use in order to define what is good and what is evil, then they could be better, perhaps, than in the way that God made them, that he told them that he made them, that they believed the satanic lie that God lied to them and that they could become greater than who they were if they would just live according to what? According to the knowledge of good and evil, which is a way of describing the law. If you try to live according to the law, then you are trying to live according to the knowledge of good and evil. This is the satanic lie. The satanic lie is very simple, that you can live according to the law, that you can do it, and that it means something, and that you will be greater than God wanted you to be to begin with, and so let's do it. The Lord our God provided the law for a number of reasons, but one of the reasons why he provided the law through Moses was to contribute to mankind's great effort to try and be like God. It was his contribution, in addition to other things. It was his contribution to say, you want to try it? Is that what you really want to do? Do you really want me to judge you according to your works? Do you want to be sure that you do the right works and be sure you don't do the wrong works? Here you go. I will give you the list. I will give you 613 commandments and some others that are inferred from that. You just follow these and you will be a great person. In fact, I'll validate that. I will bless you with every blessing that you could possibly enjoy while you are here on earth. I will give you plenty of flour in your kneading bowl. Your enemies will flee from you in war. Your children will not be consumed by wild animals. You will lend and not borrow. Right? That's what he said in order to give some incentive. But he never said anything about, oh, by the way, if you find a way to obey successfully, you'll know who I am. He never said that. He never said, if you obey successfully, you'll have a place with me in the kingdom of heaven. No, he never said that. In fact, you could go so far as to say, I believe you could go so far as to say, that even if a person successfully obeys all of the laws, to the extent where they would not be defined as lawless, then the Lord would simply look at them and say, oh yeah, you might not be lawless, but you're not alive either. And so you got to go to the place with the other dead people. That Not even that would do it, if it was even possible, which it's not. Do you understand what I'm telling you? Please think about this, and please hear me when I tell you that the demons have been using 
the law in order to destroy people through deception. It is a deception to live believing that you can be right with God through your repentance and obedience, through your obedience to the law. The Lord never said that you would be right with him if you did that. That's the devil who said that. The devil said that if you will obey, if you will do that which is good and not do that which is wrong, you will be right with God, obviously, because you're just like him. That's the message of the devil. That is the gospel of the devil. And that is the nature of the war that you are in. Listen, I can appreciate the significance of engaging a demon personally, casting a demon out of somebody. I can appreciate that. But folks, that's not where the real war is at. That certainly is a part of it, but it's such a small part of it that it's so easy to miss, completely miss the large part. Have you noticed that very few people encounter demons personally in a way where they have some conversation with them or something? Do you understand that this doesn't happen very often? Have you noticed that? Have you noticed that there does not seem to be many cases where people are possessed by demons to the extent where the demon might overcome their consciousness in some way or overcome their flesh in some way in order to exercise their flesh in a way that they might hurt somebody or run really fast or who knows what it might be? Do you understand that these are very unusual kinds of circumstances? Unusual in the sense that you don't see this happen very often, but you know that it must happen somewhere, in some way, at some time. You know why it's so unusual? It's because that's not really where the war is. That's part of the war, but the war is so much bigger. It is there. It is with you. It is with us. It is happening right now, but it is happening in another way, in a different way. And I'm telling you that the war, the real nature of the war happens between the issues of law and grace. That's where the war is. Whether a person is going to be able to live by grace or whether they're going to live by law, that is where the war is. And the devil will do whatever he can in order to deceive a person into living according to law in order to keep them from grace, he will go so far as to give the appearance that you cast him out of somebody in order to get you to live this way. Because in the end, the issue is either Christ is in you or he's not. And I will continue with this in the next program. You have been listening to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries. You can hear all of our programs for free through our radio archive at livinggodministries.net. That is, livinggodministries.net. Do help us develop new radio programs and continue broadcasting on this and other radio stations. Send your contributions to Living God Ministries, P.O. Box 38353, Colorado Springs, Colorado. 80937 or use the donation link on our website livinggodministries.net that is livinggodministries.net